across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Welcome to the divided nation that is formerly known as the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. As I predicted on Friday, we were treated to another weekend of lawless behaviour, thuggery and downright anarchy on the streets of this country. A policewoman lies in a hospital bed with a collapsed lung and multiple other injuries thanks to the violent disorder that rained down upon Downing Street and other parts of central London on Saturday night. A statue of Edward Colston lies at the bottom of a harbour in Bristol after an act of criminal damage. Unhindered by police officers, a group of demonstrators were allowed to climb onto the statue, attach ropes to it, and then pull it to the ground before dragging it through the streets. The police stood by and watched it happen. They explained later that to have interfered might have caused more trouble. They took the same approach in London when more marauding protesters desecrated the cenotaph with spray paint and someone tried to burn the Union flag. It's a miracle the Churchill statue remains in place, and it's no thanks to the police, who appear to have turned into nothing more than superannuated supermarket security guards. It isn't good enough and it's absolutely criminal that the actions of the mob are now being fully endorsed by senior Labour Party MPs. Where on earth is it going to end? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up, we'll be investigating the government's strategy with former communications chief Lucian Hudson and we're joined by Peter Hitchens for our weekly debate on lockdown liabilities, policing problems and freedom of speech. 0344 499 1000 of course is the number you need to call because as ever, we do need to hear from you as well. How on earth is it possible or even realistic for the rest of us law-abiding citizens to now obey the rules when there are thousands of people flouting every single one of them for no other reason that they feel strongly about something? What on earth have we become in this once great country? 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, lots of you have uh, seen tweets over the course of the weekend. There's been lots of anger. There's been lots of rows. There's been lots of people having different opinions and different views. I want to put one thing very clearly to you this morning, and that is this. The fact that people can act unlawfully without fear or favour is the beginning of the end of a moderate and decent society. If nobody obeys the law... There is no point in there being a law. And if the police are not going to carry out uh, the letter of the law and arrest people who then do break the law, then I'm afraid there's not much point in having the police force, is there? Let's have a listen to what the Bristol police said after the statue was torn down, dragged through the city centre of Bristol and thrown into the harbour. over the last couple of years. So whilst I am disappointed that people were damaged, one of our statues, I do understand why it's happened. It's very symbolic. You might wonder why we didn't intervene and why we uh, just allowed people to put it in the docks. We made a very tactical decision that to stop people from doing that act may have caused further disorder and we decided the safest piece to do in terms of our policing tactics was to allow it to take place. Should you have stopped this happening? Should you have protected the statue? So our policing star was from the outset low-key. We were not able to get to the statue in time to protect it. And once it had actually been toppled, there was clearly a pre-planned uh, attempt 
to bring that down. They had grappling ropes and they had, uh, and they had the right tools. So once it was down, we made a decision. The right thing to do was just allow it to happen because what we did not want is tension. Some people will say that maybe that's the wrong strategy, that you should have intervened, intervened and, and challenged this behaviour. So I understand why people might think that we should have intervened and challenged, but this was a very difficult policing operation. There's a lot of context that sits around it, and I believe we did the right thing. No regrets? No regrets. No regrets. Uh, also, no policing uh, whatsoever. So, uh, whenever there is uh, a problem for the Brist- Bristol police, whenever they are confronted with something uh, which they think might cause a problem, uh, they're just going to let it happen. I didn't stop anybody stealing your car because, you know, if I had asked them to stop stealing your car, uh, they might have uh, attacked me. I didn't stop anybody uh, from rioting in the street because I thought, you know what, um, if they burn shops and they loot businesses, that's okay because actually it would be more troublesome if we stopped them. Do you see where this is going? doesn't make an awful lot of sense. Let us talk to our good friend Lucian Hudson, former head of government communications, because I think the government is in dire need of some decent communications. Lucian, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, it's a tricky uh, situation, this, for the government, because on the one hand, you've got Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, saying that there has been criminal activity committed in Bristol, while at the same time telling people not to demonstrate, while at the same time allowing them to do so. I mean, I was talking at the weekend to someone who said it's a bit like having a bad parent who says to you, um, you can't go outside. And you go, well, I'm going anyway. And they go, oh, OK, then. And then you go, well, whatever you do when you go outside, don't meet anyone. Oh, well, I'm going to meet my friends. Oh, OK, then. I mean, it's like they're allowing anyone to do whatever they want. Um, I agree with you. It's very difficult. Uh, I, I know I can see where you're coming from, Mike, and I, too, share your concerns. Uh, I don't see a single uh, political leader, either in Westminster or civic leader, this morning condoning violence or criminal damage. But from a communications perspective, I think we have to be realistic uh, and I think we need to deal with the causes and not just the symptoms. And for me, that means recognising the strength of feeling. It means not just rejecting racist incidents, but also tackling wider systemic issues, you know, jobs, health, uh, education. And it also means that I think, Mike, we can't expect the police to do all the heavy lifting for the rest of society. The police have to do their job. But equally, I think the governments should now use this opportunity as a reset uh, on coronavirus and on this to build a broader base of support with opposition leaders and also the first ministers in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Because unless we do that, we'll see more division at the very time that we need to pull together and pull through. Yes, I get that as well. But equally, you know, it's important that we uh, view uh, through the lens of democracy what it is that we're facing here. Because what we've got, for example, in Bristol uh, are people saying basically, look, we didn't like this statue. Uh, We had a petition. 11,000 people signed the petition. Now, Bristol is a city of over 530,000 people, right? So it's a very small percentage of people that signed a petition. Now, whether you think the the, the statue should be there or not uh, is a perfectly debatable issue. And certainly there are those who would say that Edward Colston uh, was a ghastly individual who was a slave trader. There will be other people who say yes, but he was also 
also a philanthropist. And it was a very different time. And, you know, looking at history through the lens of the modern day is always complicated. But putting that to one side, what happened is, is quite rightly described by Priti Patel as a criminal act. And if you do nothing about that, surely uh, rather than, um, you know, making sure that you calm this, the seeds of opposition, you're basically encouraging other criminal acts, aren't you? That is right. And I think you're actually striking the right chord by saying, you know, what kind of new normal are we building here? Mm. We've all been talking for some weeks now. This is the seventh interview I've done with you, Mike, where, you know, broadly, I have been supportive of government overall strategy. I've also been constructively critical, I hope. And I've also tried to be independent. Mm. I think what's needed is for us to listen to the underlying concerns to show that we are not just listening or are showing sympathy, but we're going to take action. But any action we take has to be peaceful, has to be democratic. In whose interest is it to support further violence, further disruption? And I think we need to remind ourselves what in the old normal we still want to keep. And I think what we want to keep is a society where the rule of law does apply and that applies to everybody. Yes, but we do have a strain of society, generally speaking, coming from the left, I would say, who don't like the fact that they can't seem to win democratically any sort of position of power nationally, right? But we've got a Tory government that was voted in with a massive majority of 80 seats, despite the fact that supposedly, according to what you would read on social media, uh, everybody hates Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson's a racist, he's a misogynist, he's a sexist, he's all these things. And yet the majority of the country actually does not go along with that. So should we be being ruled by what is effectively a minority? And I mean politically I now, think in that, that sense. Yeah, politically, there's a challenge. I think we cannot forget, and that remains the top priority, we have an ongoing public health crisis, and now we've also got what could be an economic crisis. And those two things are not an either-or. Mm. We need to tackle them both. That's why the government is was right to have the lockdown and is right to lift the restrictions provided we observe social distancing and other measures come into play, play as, as well. I think the difficulty is at the moment that the government does need to recapture some of that broad consensus that seemed to be there at the, in the early days of yeah. lockdown. And therefore, I would advise, just from a comms communications perspective, to tone down the rhetoric and to see if I can re we can rebuild bridges across society to focus on what's the most important, which is to see off the ap epidemic and tackle this rising concern, continued concern about racism in our society. And just to quote one example, I was director of communications at the University of Oxford. And last year we had major a major announcement where we decided to communicate new initiatives to widen access to students from underrepresented backgrounds. There is this felt view that Oxford is elitist. Well, it's certainly for academic excellence, and that's great. It's helping now us, well, helping should, us now with vaccines. But should it not be elitist, Lucian? Isn't that the point of Oxford? Of course it's elitist. Well, I think it's a point about an institution, a university institution, clearly achieving excellence but equally as we showed through the, those initiatives last year which will come into play over the next two years oxford university is shifting the numbers of people from um, underrepresented backgrounds from one in seven to one in four 
And it's important our institutions, our key institutions, our top universities are seen both, I think, to pursue excellence, but also to widen access so that everybody has a stake in the future success of this country. Well, everybody does have a stake in this in the future success of this country, but not quite in the same manner, because the most underrepresented group of young people in this country are young white working class males, I'm afraid. But very little is actually done for them, particularly academically. I think universities do need to reconnect. And when you first interviewed me two months ago, I did write a paper that said universities need to reconnect with their staff, with their students, with a wider country. That hasn't gone away. All I'm saying is that big institutions can lead by example. They don't just have to pay lip service to dealing with racism or discrimination. They can actually take action. All I'm saying is that we might, we need now more concerted action reached through peaceful means across our institutions so that more people have a stake in the future. Yeah, but the problem is, Lucy, and that's all very nice and very well. However, most people don't have a chance to go to Oxford and it's a very small microcosm of society that you're talking about because those people who end up going to Oxford, regardless of from whatever background they come, are going to become elitist in the end because they're going to go into top jobs, they're going to have a network of people around them who've also got top jobs and they become part of the small number of people at the very top. What doesn't happen is it trickles down to the people all the way through society, regardless of what colour they are, regardless of what their lives are like. And we have a massive disparity in this country between the rich and the poor, uh, which is not necessarily driven in any way by ethnicity. But education is critical. And I agree with you, Oxford and Cambridge will always be oversubscribed. It's in the nature of those institutions. But that's why we need a, a broad and diverse university sector, which we continue to invest in so that more people do have an opportunity to be educated and do have more opportunity to secure change in their society through greater social mobility. And I think there's a broad consensus on that. We just need to continue to invest in those institutions that can make a long-term difference to our future. Going back to what the government now does about lockdown and what it does about the whole kind of situation with COVID-19, it certainly seems as though the um, disease is on the wane. I was slightly um, alarmed this morning to hear Kit Malthouse saying to Julia Hartley Brewer, well, we'll just have to hold our breath to see whether or not there's a spike in a couple of weeks as a result of what happened this weekend. You know, putting that to one side, um, I don't know many people now in this country who believe a word that the government says about the lockdown and that they don't think that it applies to them anymore. Well, that would be mistaken. Uh, you know, we, I think there's been a tendency recently, I think quite understandably, there's a lot of anger, frustration, restlessness, but it doesn't take away from the key message that we have in coronavirus, a virus that we don't fully understand yet, we do not have a solution for, either in terms of an effective vaccine or drug treatment. And so at the moment, however frustrating it is, we have to find ways of living with it and get the economy going again. And those big messages I do not think have changed and no one queries. Where there's been a difference of opinion has been on the tactics and the implementation. And understandably, people have taken the government to task on the implementation. But I think we need to recover, recapture what it is that we're dealing with here. Because unless we do so, we'll have a return to to, 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 to spike in, in coronavirus. We'll have a return to lockdown. 
and we'll have further setback in terms of getting the economy moving again. All those things are very fundamental and we should try and avoid them. And that includes urging restraints on how many people meet in public. And that restraint has to be exercised by all and can't just be imposed by the police. Yes, but it can't just also be ruled upon by people who have allowed what's just happened over the weekend. And I'm not talking about, you know, the cause of the demonstration, but the fact of the demonstration in and of itself. Thousands of people marching around central London, very, very close to one another, not at all trying to practice social distancing. You know, I mean, a lot of people, and I might be one of them, would say, well, why can't I go to the pub? Precisely. So we need to just understand that there has been a strength of feeling, but we now need to think, all of us, including the people who put together protests, they need to think, how is it best to express a strong view, to see that there's a change as a result of that, without risking a return to a second spike or second wave of coronavirus. And for that to be achieved, I think the government and the opposition and the governments in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland all need to come together and see this as an opportunity for a reset because this is very perilous. And the Prime Minister will be making a speech before long. And I hope he strikes that same chord as he did at the outset where he himself acknowledged there's more to unite us than to divide us. And let, 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 let's pull together, because if we don't, then everything is at stake, including anything we might do to tackle racism. Indeed. Lucid, thank you very much indeed. Lucid Hudson, former head of government communications, of course. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very, very good morning for the 11th time to Mr Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday. I think I may be right in saying talking to us from the London office uh, of the newspaper. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning, and indeed I am speaking to you from the office and, and do you where, have a f- where I've been uh, working since the middle of last week when I finally overcame the various difficulties which which stand in the way of people going back to, to, to work in offices in London. Yep, no, indeed. In I fact, am. I saw a picture of you uh, on Facebook that had been taken by our, our mutual friend, Mr John McEntee. Oh, uh, yes, the gas mask. <laughs> the gas mask, yeah. Um, I mean, funnily enough, we've been told in this building that uh, more people will be coming back soon, um, and we are now asked to wear a rather attractive black uh, sort of cotton face mask uh, during the times we're in the lifts and in the lobby, but but nowhere else. Yes, well, something similar. But my, I declared some weeks ago that if required to wear a muzzle in public, then that that <laughs> uh, that Warsaw Pact style uh, a gas mask was the only muzzle I was going to wear. I must admit, uh, I, it's, I, it's, it's, it's the only way I can do it while subverting it, and I, I think the whole thing is is, is completely ridiculous. Well, I must say, um, a couple of times I thought of you over the weekend. One when I saw the uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, wearing a mask and taking the knee, and I thought. To myself, you know, I can imagine what Peter Hitchens would make of this. There is, well, with Justin Trudeau, there is nothing that man will not do, really. Is there? But he never, he never got over being outed as, as having taken part in a blackface performance. No, quite. That the really rest didn't of his help. His life did it? will be spent in attempted atonement for that. Yes. But he'll never, ever, ever shake it off, which no. I suppose is funny in its way. Well, it is. But more ridiculously, I suppose, watching the events of the weekend uh, with growing alarm, and I mean, it wasn't that difficult to predict on Friday that they would end in, in some form of violence. But basically, um, you know, the lockdown would appear to be over wouldn't it well i don't know i think there is a a danger that some excuse will be found uh, to extend and reapply it 
And I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't rely on that not happening. I think one hears quite a lot of people saying, now, what about the second wave? Even though Professor Hugh Pennington, the distinguished microbiologist, keeps coming out and saying, well, actually, I don't think there's going to be a second wave. The government's obsessed with the second wave and with the almost meaningless R number, which people worship in, in, yes. in a way in which they worship the great spirit in the sky. Uh, and it doesn't really have any objective existence. So I don't rule it out. Don't rule out some, given the really peculiar behavior of the government in persisting with this completely insane quarantine scheme, which the Home Office mm. admits... Which is not a quarantine scheme at all. Anyway, uh, it, it has absolutely no advantage to anybody, and it will make them look stupid, uh, as well as doing a huge amount of commercial and employment damage and making people miserable. Why? They've been told over and over again, why don't they give it up? I don't, it, it suggests that the government is being run from some underground bunker where they are very, very faintly aware of what's going on. You see, I, the Sunday Times yesterday reported that when a couple of cabinet ministers, the Chancellor and the Business Secretary, went to tell the Prime Minister that actually quite a lot of jobs were threatened by mm. his policy, he was surprised. <laughs> and emitted a, 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 a blasphemous syllable. I, I, I just wonder, how much does he know about what's going on in, in the country which he theoretically governs? Well, this is the it, thing, it does, isn't it? It does make you worry. Well, I mean, we, we appear now to be uh, sort of run by some madman, do we not? Where not only did the government follow the science, but the police now follow the kind of uh, uh, community activists who tell them what to do. Because Kit Malthouse was on Julie Harley Brewer's show this morning uh, as, the, as the minister of the day, saying that let's, let's just hold our breath and see uh, whether in two weeks' time we have a second peak. Doesn't strike me as terribly scientific, that. Well, I know, but following the science is always is in itself a, a, a weird thing to say. Science is in a constant state of dispute, and you have to decide which science that you follow. But I'm interested to see that you've joined me in what I've been, what I, what I said when we had our first encounter. Yes. That, that, that well, we, listen. That the, the country has in fact gone mad, mm. uh, but it's not just the government that's gone mad. It's large, uh, large part of the population has has done so. I was amused to see as I walked out of Paddington Station this morning a woman earnestly and vigorously smoking. Uh, <laughs> she pulled down her face muzzle yes. so she could do this. Right. I think there must be a future in selling face muzzles with holes in them so people can smoke. Yes, I've seen them. people doing that as well. It really is quite remarkable. It's like, but, it's like smokers drinking mineral water. You know, they, 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 I think they may have missed the point. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, I mean, I, I, I've, I've always moved closer to your point of view um, since about halfway through these conversations, I would say. But that doesn't change my thoughts at the beginning of them, which was that at the time, what we knew, when we knew it and all of that, I think, and there's no point in rehearsing the same argument, but I still think that we had to do what we did. However, uh, now, now it has reached ridiculous proportions, partly because, you know, I still believe that the government is using this kind of rather strange way of running the country, which is to kind of let people do things and then say, well, we told you not to do that. But now that you're doing it, we might as well make it legal. Well, again, they are being they are being led out of the shutdown rather than leading yeah. us out of it. But I, I would disagree with you. But I think there was quite a lot of stuff came out last week, which I which I retweeted and gave prominence mm. of surveys showing that the, 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 there is a, still a total lack of evidence uh, that the action was justified from the start. And I think that that, that is still very much the case. That it, yes, it's but, but I suppose you, you 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 have to, we have to return to our old um, our old debate about Japan, hmm. uh, where and Taiwan as well as Sweden. And Sweden was seriously misrepresented in a lot of publications last week. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. Spun, I think, very naughtily an interview with Anders Tegnell, the chief of 
public health there uh, to say something which Mr. Tegnell then had to come out and say, no, I didn't say that. Right. Uh, I mean, he basically, what he basically Sweden, said... Sweden is good, but, uh, can I just one small thing yeah. before you... This, uh, I, I know people think that I, I uh, overdo it in these conversations, <laughs> but I, I, would, I would like to draw to your attention a, a fascinating story in The Observer yesterday yes. about the number of deaths which have taken place in care homes. Mm. And also this thing which I really do think someone should be investigating very vigorously. Uh, what appears to have happened is that large numbers of people were ejected from hospitals into care homes. Mm. And I, I think that if you might find in that story the origins of the quite high numbers of people who've died in this country um, by comparison with some other European countries, no, nothing to do with any uh, with, with house arrest or, or shutting down the economy, but purely to do with a, a policy of clearing the hospital. But strangely, um, I mean, the government have denied that, of course. They said there was no policy that did that because the care homes, generally speaking, are run by the councils. However, um, the other problem is that uh, why then, if they made a mistake by doing that, would they then insist on counting the numbers of dead in the care homes to make themselves look even worse? Well, governments are peculiar things. So they, the one hand doesn't necessarily know what the other hand is doing. Also, there are honest people in government who are in charge of, of compiling figures and facts and who who do so without any comment at all uh, to, to to let people know that something funny is going on. I, I think when, particularly when officials are at press conferences or are called in, you have to watch very carefully their facial expressions and what they say. They don't like being used as props for politicians, mm. and they will often, by their actions and by the things that they say, make it plain that they're not entirely uh, in tune with what's being said. I think there could be some of that going on as well. Yes, they're very well... These well, things don't things come out by accident. Oh, no, I, I, I don't think that's that's the case at all, but I, this is why I do believe that the actual kind of way that this is all unfolding uh, and unravelling, you might say, is a kind of deliberate uh, unravelling, if you like. I mean, I'm not suggesting that they're particularly clever, um, but I do think that there is some form of what you could see as a collective strategy, as you said, to allow uh, the public to kind of lead them out. Because if they really seriously believed that this was a danger to, 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 to life and limb, to let people demonstrate in close quarters by the thousands in the middle of central London and elsewhere, surely they couldn't in good conscience let it happen. Well, no, but then again, there's always the grave difficulty of, of saying you were going to prevent something and then failing to prevent it, mm. uh, which would be even worse. Yes. And then again, there is I, p people don't understand what's happened to the police. I mean, I was looking up uh, for another reason at the weekend, what I'd written back in, I think, 2004 about Cressida Dick, mm. which is when I first predicted she would become commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. And I did so on the basis of very interesting reports of her her performance as a, as a relatively senior police officer in Oxford, where I live, where she'd pioneered these uh, these um, techniques mm. of, of negotiating, well, nothing. negotiating with demonstrators uh, rather than insisting mm. that the police uh, and the law controlled the streets. And I think there's been a very, very long period during which the police have, have, have moved away from the old position where, well, I used to be a Trotskyist. We used to go on demonstrations. Yeah. And the police were there. I developed quite a strong respect for them in those days. They, they would be there. They'd escort us. And I used to think, why are they doing this? Who are they protecting us from? And it, it came to me as the time went by. What they were doing was they were saying, so we're here. Uh, if you want to make trouble, uh, there are plenty of us here. We're quite big. And uh, you'll big find sticks. some difficulty in it. Yeah. 
And, but they didn't in those days wear shields and clubs and, and all the rest of it. They, they wore the normal tunics and the truncheons were concealed. But they were just sending a straightforward signal to us that there are limits to what you can do. And if, and if you want to go further, then we're here to stop you. Yeah. Now the police um, tend to either be extremely feeble or they turn out quite late on in the matter, in, right. in, 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 in the sort of riot gear, which would have been unthinkable. Well, that's what happened on Saturday, wasn't it? Well, I think I haven't. No, I wasn't there. I haven't. But it, it looked like it. Yes. Uh, no, they so wheeled those people out. It was a political out. decision that, mm. they were, that, in, 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 that they weren't going to get in the way in some cases. But this is. But that goes right back to the to the to, to, to the Cressida Dick's early years in Thames Valley Police and in in the early years of this century. And it's, yeah. it's not it's not a new thing. It's just this is one of the first times it's come out in. In, remember also the, the way in which the police behaved towards the Extinction Rebellion yeah. uh, protesters. Uh, the, the, they ridiculous. pretty much conceded the streets to them. Right. Well, this is well, the it, thing. I mean, it seems now... It's ridiculous to me, but it, it's, it's very much in tune with the sort of policing we have now. And I, I, I've come to expect it. Half my problem as a journalist is that I'm no longer surprised by things that I ought to be surprised yeah. by. But these are the same police who went knocking on Nigel Farage's door for taking a trip to uh, Dover to film some uh, illegal migration going on. Uh, the same police who uh, went to somebody else's door to ask them why they'd gone out for a walk on the peak, in the Peak District. You know, I mean, it beggars belief what is going on. But certainly Not to it me. Seems... I mean, I, I, I wrote a book in 2004 called The Abolition of Liberty, which went in detail into the revolution which had taken place in the police force in this country. And I couldn't get anybody to read it. I personally pressed it into right. the hands of, uh, uh, of various, uh, even metropolitan police commissioners and home secretaries. Mm. Who I've, I've said, look, please, will you read this? Because this is where it's all going wrong. And I've never even had, uh, in, except in one case, from any of these people, uh, even a letter of mm. response saying thanks for this. It, the, it, there has been, it, it, is actually, it has actually been the core, in some ways, of the social and moral revolution which yeah. has overtaken this country, the way in which the police have changed from being one thing to something totally different. Yeah. And it's been a very successful part of the Cultural Revolution. Right. And part of what's going on now, and I find this increasingly fascinating, this long period of dream time in which we live, this is the period in which we forget the society we used to be. And when it's all over, we move into an entirely new kind of society. And of course, all the radicals and, uh, who've, who've wanted to change things See, this is an opportunity. Yeah, but this is what and they're saying one now. One of the reasons why they're out on the streets now. I mean, it's, it, everybody grieves at the, at, 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 at the deaths of people at the hands of, of, of police anywhere. But, but of course. Minnesota is a long way from London or Bristol. And the, the, the American police are very dissimilar to any police force in the United Kingdom. That's very and true. It's, it's but this is this is my worry, it's, Peter, and if I may it's just It's about jump in. something else, that's the point. Yeah, well, this is the thing. You know, we keep hearing this phrase, you know, we need to change the system, the systemic racism. We need to change this, we need to change that. Effectively, what we're being told now is that if enough people, and it doesn't have to be very many people, because only 11,000 people signed a petition to remove the statue um, of Edward Colston in Bristol, right? There's 353, sorry, 553,000 people living in Bristol, so that's less than two and a half percent of them wanted yeah. to remove the statue but because they feel strongly about it apparently they're allowed to do it uh, without the police interfering uh, because it might be a problem to stop them i mean that i find to be the politics of the nuthouse frankly well it is but then again we're living in the country of the nuthouse so expect more of the politics of the nuthouse what you what there isn't hasn't been for some very long time 
any thoughtful or intelligent conservative resistance to any of this stuff. And again, that's what this, that's what my book goes into. Mm. That there just isn't any. You'd, you, so 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 what the what the, the, the I, no, actually if somebody if I lived in Bristol and somebody asked me did I want the statue of, of of Charles Colson to be removed, I'd probably say yes. I don't think it's it's got any business to be there. I'm no, I mean some say it should be in a museum. I'd be happy with that because it exactly. shouldn't be forgotten. I mean, we shouldn't, I was, I was we shouldn't wipe it from the, history the, though. At the end of the Soviet Union, when that collapsed, and I was there in, in, in Moscow in those wonderful August days in 1991, statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky, the founder of the KGB, and a, the statue of a horrible child called Pavlik Morozov, who denounced his parents to the secret police, mm. they both came down. And I thought, well, that's great, uh, but their, their, their removal symbolized the end of what was quite frankly an evil regime and there hasn't been any slavery or any slave trade for centuries mm. and so what did uh, what did charles colson's statue symbolize uh, that ceased that ceased to exist uh, when it fell it certainly wasn't slavery no well somebody not, rather you know, wisely rid of largely by this country yeah well somebody rather wisely opined that you know uh, racism is so rife in this country that they had to go back a couple of centuries to find something that offended them i wouldn't i wouldn't join in that i think there is there is still a lot of, of racial bigotry in various forms in in, in this country and pe- people who encounter it are quite bitter about it and i don't blame them for being it'll never be entirely resolved but it's nothing, again, nothing like the, the state of informal, unacknowledged segregation, which still exists in the United States, for instance. And we've, we've made a lot of progress, but I don't think it's it really, it, 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 it's for me, a well-off white person, uh, to say that there's no, there's no racial problem in this country, because obviously there is, and, and it still does affect people. But sure. the pulling down the statue of a long-dead slave trader isn't going to alter that. No. And it's, a, it's purely and simply um, a statement of intent, really, isn't it? And it just, but what it does to me, what it shows me, which is what I fear the most, is that it shows that they can do what they want. And if they now decide that next they're going to move to... I actually was, was quite sure at one point yesterday afternoon that they would somehow tear down Winston Churchill because it looked as though there was a crowd gathering there. It looked as though they might do it. And now, basically, the message to them from the police is that we won't stop you. Well, I don't know. I know. The Churchill thing was in many ways more interesting than the Colson thing, that someone actually felt able to uh, to deface the Churchill monument. Uh, but that's, that's an important change. It used to be, the effect of Churchill's name used to be almost magical in mm. politics. Uh, even people who had counted themselves as political opponents in the past would tend to say, well, yes, actually, he did save the country. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's largely forgotten now. And I think the fact that someone could go and deface even the plinth mm. uh, was a was a, a, a rather rather more disturbing thing yeah. than, than the pulling down of, of, as I say, a long-dead slave trader, who I think most of us would say probably didn't deserve to have a statue to him mm. anyway. Whereas uh, we would definitely say, you and I... Yes. And, almost all the people we know, that there ought to be a statue to Winston Churchill in, uh, in Parliament Square. And it ought to be uh, able to, to to remain there, uh, even if people disagree with it, because it the whole point it surely... It shouldn't be protecting either. It shouldn't no, it be shouldn't. someone standing no. next to it saying, don't... And if you want this, to say to me that, you know... Protection. Yeah, and if you want to say and make an argument to me that, you know, Winston Churchill carried out some horrendous things uh, as part of his life, he was a racist in some parts of his life, you can make those arguments. But don't tell me, therefore, we have to take the statue down. You know, because that's completely wrong. But let me ask you finally, uh, because we've got about three or four minutes left. 
about your encounter with the YouTube um, shadow ban, because I think a lot of people will find this very interesting. And I know you've been yeah, writing sure. about it, but not everybody knows about it. Tell us what happened. No, well, very briefly, I, I, I did an interview with a, a, a group called Trigonometry uh, who put it on YouTube. I'd done one with them before some time ago, but it, and it got a, quite a large number of, uh, of viewers. Mm. But this one didn't. And the, the, the people who made it, uh, one of whom is a guy called Constantine. Yes, Kessler, I know them, yeah. Said, um, what's going on here? And they, they asked around. A lot of people said, well, we can't find it. Mm by the normal ways. And it's impossible. I'd contacted YouTube and made a fuss, and a number of people um, from uh, from Ian Dale to Toby Young joined in, and um, and and the unheard people gave me quite a lot of help as mm. well, because they had a similar experience with an interview with Carol Sikora, which had actually been taken down by YouTube right. and then put back up again. But YouTube has never actually acknowledged that they did anything. And if it was shadow banned, the whole point about shadow banning is it basically means fiddling with the algorithms so that something is much harder to find mm. and i didn't if they hadn't told me i'd never have known yes this is the thing i was censored without knowing it and also without 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 people who might have wanted to see it knowing they looked for it they couldn't find it they didn't know it was there they didn't even know they'd miss it if this had been successful if the trigonometry people hadn't raised the alarm, then censorship would have taken place, done by whom I cannot say, because right. I have no evidence except that it happened. Mm. Censorship could have taken place, and people would never have known that something had been said which they might have been interested in hearing. Yes. That seems to me to be deeply sinister. Yes, and this is the interesting argument that people make about um, you know, apps and tracing and tracking people, because they say, well, of course, oh. you know, we don't trust the government, but we do trust Google and Apple. And you go, are you sure about that? You know, Do you really want well, to I'm told that the people who GCHQ said, I don't know why people make such a fuss about us. We're, we're much less successful interfering in people's private lives than, 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 than the commercial guys. Facebook. Well, exactly. I, I mean, I'm something. still puzzled by every time I have a conversation in my living room, despite my microphones all being turned off, that Facebook will somehow find an advert uh, which will refer to something I was talking about. I don't have know how they do some, it. Have you got some Alexa machine? Not really, no, but I've got a television, which I'm told now, if you have it on standby. Oh, that's, that's certainly listening to you, and so your phone be is listening to you all the time. No, no, the, 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 the 1984 and Brave New World, both happening at the same time. Who'd have yeah. thought it? Yeah, I know. Absolutely staggering stuff. Well, great to talk to you again, Peter. Take care. Uh, we shall speak to you soon. Good to have you back in London, back in the heart of uh, what can only be described as darkness at the moment. Uh, it doesn't look very nice as I look out uh, onto my lavish uh, view of London. I can see the Tower of London. It might be a place we should be making more use of, quite frankly, under the current circumstances. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Alex Macheras now, aviation analyst, because uh, British Airways back in the news. Uh, there's been lots of emails flying backwards and forwards over the last few days. Uh, there's talk now that the, the, the genie, if you like, is out of the bottle, that people are now beginning to realise that this plan, this plan that British Airways management have got going, has got nothing to do with coronavirus, has got nothing to do uh, with the grounding of planes, and it's got everything to do with the restructuring uh, of the company. And it's all coming from the top, their parent company, IAG, which, of course, is owned uh, by a Spanish company uh, and quarter subsidised by Qatar. Alex, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Hi. Yeah, we spoke last week, Alex, about this. And since then, we've had an awful lot of communications from pilots, uh, people who work for BA, cabin crew, very concerned, very saddened and really, really upset by what British Airways is doing. It would now appear um, that this plan to kind of move their base, if you like, has been going for some time. 
Well, British Airways belong to a parent company that is ultimately Anglo-Spanish. So it's you know, it's half British, half Spanish. And while, of course, the Spanish airlines in the group outnumber the only UK airline in that group, their focus in terms of IAG as a whole is always boosting that Madrid hub. Mm. And is it any wonder now that they are using the pandemic as an excuse to not take the kind of survival measures that they are saying are necessary at Iberia or Vueling, for example, where there are no mass redundancies announced, but actually they are pressing on with a restructuring that, as you said, many parts of this plan have been in the drawer of the CEO's office for a very long time. There are people who have dedicated a long time of service to British Airways that are on older contracts that the CEO has publicly said over the over the last few years that he ultimately wants to get them recontracted and on a, on a lower pay as they restructure VA. And the pandemic has given many airlines like VA the opportunity to blame everything on the fact that air travel demand has fallen and they have to take these measures. And there are two sides to this coin. Air travel demand has fallen and aviation will not recover to pre-COVID levels for around three to five years. But the other side to that is if we look at every other flag carrier around the world, around the same size and scale of BA or similar, they are not taking these measures. And that's because it wasn't part of their scope. And for BA, it absolutely and sadly for the employees was. Yes. And why is it important for them to sort of move further away from the UK and closer to a kind of uh, uh, everything being in Spain, if you like? And the other story I've been hearing is is, is the one that connects them to Norwegian Airlines uh, because they want to try and get their hands on some of the modern aircraft that Norwegian Airlines has. Well, IAG are incredibly cash rich. Let's be clear. This isn't a, an airline group that owns British Airways that is anywhere near struggling. In fact, they are one of the most profitable companies in the world in the aviation industry, including right now in a pandemic. They have billions in, in financial cash reserves. Now, like I said, it is an incredibly tough time for all, but their focus has always been Spain, to answer your question, because ultimately the majority of the airlines in the group are Spanish. They are too incredibly profitable. And despite VA being the most significant driver of profits within the company, it is, for IAG's perspective, probably the most messy because it isn't as refined as the they have been able to implement in Spain over previous years. There are staff on older contracts, the mixing with staff on newer contracts. They have a, a vast operation worldwide. They're operating old jets, new jets and everything in between. And as I said, the pandemic has really given Willie Walsh, the CEO of IAG, to take a, a higher ground than actual the CEO of British Airways, who has seemingly vanished since this pandemic started, Alex Cruz. And he's now ultimately blaming every hard decision on this. And the latest developments, as you mentioned earlier, at the start of the show, is that the genie is out of the lamp. And they have stated in the first letter that they threaten ultimately their pilots that if they will be unwilling to accept new terms they will be dismissing all and yep. then rehiring on reduced terms and that's exactly what the media were reporting a couple of months ago when IAG were denying this. That's right and I mean I've seen a document that was supposedly sent over the weekend from BALPA the union uh, in which it points out that the number of pilots under threat has now gone from 955 to 1080 um, which excludes 175 jobs already under threat. And they they say exactly that, that basically if they're unable to reach an agreement, the company would seek to force changes by terminating their employment uh, of every single pilot. I mean, it seems extraordinary uh, that they could get away with such a thing. 
It, it is extraordinary and, it is, and it, it is unprecedented. And ultimately, we do have to look outside to see, okay, to understand this, what are the other airlines doing? And it's to be blunt, it's not this. Mm. You know, we have the flag carriers of France, Air France, KLM, the flag carrier of Germany, Lufthansa. Mm. They are all receiving multi-billion dollar bailouts from their government mm. to ensure that they are not laying off anywhere near the number of staff as BA have proposed. Of course, that is another problem, is the lack of relationship between BA and the government, and the government clearly not properly taking a stance to say, look, we don't want these measures to be taken, here's what we propose. Well, it's giving BA the opportunity to implement whatever they choose to do, and we are seeing this unfold before our very eyes. No, quite. And I suppose the government's point of view might be, despite the fact that a lot of the jobs are held in the UK, this is not a British company anymore um, and while uh, they are being given much money from the furloughing scheme and they're receiving millions and millions and millions of pounds uh, on a monthly basis you know the British government may feel as it did with Virgin um, that it's not for the government to bail out these companies. And, and the UK government, in fairness, have always taken this stance really with airlines. They, they didn't bail out and rescue Thomas Cook when that folded last year. Right. They let Fly B collapse just mm. a bit before the pandemic was declared. So it, it is consistent with their stance on this. And, and yes, it's not for the government to step in and, and ultimately take control of any company that's going rogue, seemingly, with, with such harsh decisions. But like I said, this is unfolding before us, and this is unlike mm. nearly every single other national airline yes. that bears the flag of the country. Although, interesting enough, I'm looking at a story today revolving around EasyJet and Ryanair. Ryanair basically have come out and, uh, against the quarantine, saying it's a political stunt. EasyJet are saying there could be more job losses. And I seem to remember that before, or just about going into this uh, lockdown, EasyJet had also kind of taken a swipe at some of their employees and asked some of them to take an eight-week unpaid holiday, effectively, uh, with a view to cutting down on the staffing levels quite substantially. Well, as I say, airlines will have to shrink in order to survive this crisis. That is a fact. And it is naive to think that airlines can go on with the maintaining the exact same staff level as they had pre-COVID when we really were booming in the aviation industry mm. to now where demand will be on the floor. It's going to be a very slow recovery. The UK government just made sure they prolonged the crisis for airlines by implementing quarantine, a measure that should have been impl implemented in March. Instead, they're implementing half a year into a, a global health emergency for, for unknown reasons. But, uh, you know, airlines will have to shrink and that ultimately does mean cuts to workforce but it really is the extent that they have to do this and that's why BA have come under fire and of course how they conduct it and this has been nothing short of aggressive in terms of the the uh, the dynamics and how this has played out between BA and how they have ultimately put themselves against their employees at least from a communications perspective I think this has been a case study of of how not to do it we still have not heard anything from the CEO of British Airways himself Alex Cruz is, is nowhere to be seen mm. and I think at least the employees deserve a little bit of clarity in seeing him answer some questions rather than just the parent group owner IAG CEO Willie Walsh who of course has other priorities managing other airlines within that same group well that's right I mean basically as far as the government and quarantine is concerned I mean they're now arguing that if they had done this at the height of the uh, of the peak of coronavirus, it would have had little effect because if you know basically um, people would be bringing it into the country, it was already peaking here anyway. Now they say because it's now uh, so such a low level, what they don't want is people coming in and spreading it. But of course, it's a meaningless quarantine anyway because one people can travel from the airport to their home by public transport. So if they do happen to be in some way infected, then they could already be infecting loads of other people. And secondly, there's so many exceptions to it for people who can come in without having to go into quarantine that it's a worthless exercise it seems to me 
It's timing is everything when it mm. comes to implementing quarantine measures. And uh, you follow me on Twitter, as I'm sure you've seen me going on about this for yeah. a number of months. Ultimately, by the end of March, 90% of the world's population were living in countries with restrictions on who can come in. And there is a reason why 90% of the world's population were living in those countries by the end of March, because yeah. that was part of that contained phase. And we have countries like New Zealand today who are totally lifting all social distancing yeah. restrictions and all measures and everything apart from who can come in because they recognize that that was part of their success against coronavirus. Yes. Greece, a, a holiday hotspot for Brits in, in Greece, they have been extremely successful in keeping the number down. And when the prime minister was asked why, he said, well, we closed our airports early. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I remember asking somebody back at sort of beginning of February, why is it that we aren't, one, at least testing people as they come into the country in, in various airports? And I was told by this doctor, well, you know, you only really catch one in five people doing that and people can still have the virus and not uh, actually... Pre- you know, show positive for it until some time after they've come into the country. But you go, well, surely something's better than nothing, isn't it? Something is better than nothing. And I think what you were referring to there was really screening and measures. Yeah. And so kind of temperature screening, things like that. But actually, there are countries, like like I said, as I just mentioned, like Greece, who have COVID tested every single passenger to arrive into the country since March. And that way they have been able to control the virus from coming in. Aviation and air travel should have been part of the frontline defense of every single country in order to mitigate. And we are seeing from the data now that those countries that locked down early, but that really considered air travel measures and restrictions are those now Mm. coming out of it much faster than we are in the UK and are getting back to normality and here we are in the UK now kind of you know prolonging this crisis Mm. for airlines at least by implementing a measure that was best used in the contained phase. Right and what are they doing in America these days Alex Um, because I'm always trying to find out precisely whether they are putting people into quarantine who come from other countries who don't have US citizenship I understand if you're a US citizen you don't have to do quarantine but what happens if you're say a British citizen you want to go to New York? You can't at the moment. You mm. cannot. So you have to. You have to be a U.S. citizen. You have to have a green card. You you have to be one of their own in order to enter the United States, and that's been in place for quite a while. Yeah. And the U.S. citizens that are able to fly back, in some states they were required to quarantine. In some states they were just told to stay home. In others it was much more flexible. But mm. I think the reason why they they were uh, they've been least under the spotlight, I think, about at least from an air travel perspective, is because President Trump implemented that policy quite early on, basically saying. If you're not American, you're not welcome to come in 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 the heart of the pandemic. Of Mm. course, they have horrific numbers as well, the highest death toll in the world. But they, it has to be said in a report I read yesterday, apparently that number would have been significantly higher had they have not stopped uh, foreign citizens from coming into the United States. Mm, interesting stuff. Alex, thanks very much indeed. Alex uh, Mancheris there, aviation analyst, talking about the British Airways problem, which is still ongoing. Uh, we are still trying to fight the good fight for you guys, by the way. If you are working for British Airways, by all means, tweet me uh, at Talk Radio at IROMG. We'll do our best to get the information that you give us uh, to use with uh, any kind of stories that we do here and with any kind of union representatives that we talk to. Uh, And if you want to talk to us and you want to do it um, anonymously, you can also do that. Just get in touch and let us know uh, what you have to say because it's a massive story and I really think that this government should be stepping in to do something about the way British Airways is planning to treat its employees. (laughs) 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got time for more of your calls, of course. 03444991000. We've got Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock and we've got uh, Dan Wooten at four, of course, as well. Right now, though, uh, it is that time of the day uh, when we have our homeschooling section of the show uh, because for those of you who have been at home for a best part of the last three months with your children, uh, there might be times when you just have been tearing your hair out and thinking, what can I do? What can I teach them? You know, because uh, what we try to do here uh, at Talk Radio is to give you a little bit of respite around about this time every day. Uh, And we've talked uh, many, many people about a great many things. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about something slightly less mundane, perhaps, than the Pythagoras theorem, but something nonetheless which could be just as important for the history of the civilization of the country in which we live. And we are going to talk now uh, to a man uh, who is Narebind Martin, Managing Director of the British Toilet Association, uh, because he's going to tell us about the history of the humble toilette. Uh, very good afternoon to you, Raymond. Good afternoon, Mag. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, I imagine, I mean, you run a not-for-profit members organisation, um, and I suppose it's one of those things that people don't talk about an awful lot. But tell us, first of all, uh, about the history of how the toilet came to be, because apparently it was invented in this country, wasn't it? Um, well, it was certainly brought to delight in this country. We can actually trace toilets way back to the Bronze Age, and you can talk about the Harappans, who had the sort of sewage system. You can come through the Romans and even up into uh, the Middle Ages and mm. Tudor times. But um, really, the, the, the first real toilet was brought in probably in around about the 1700s um, when they invented the trapping uh, system underneath the toilet to allow the, the stuff to fall through and then mm. close over to stop any smell coming back. Um, but it really, the, the first toilet was uh, brought into the Great Exhibition in 1851 in the city of London at Crystal Palace. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, uh, Cummings actually introduced the first S-Bend and the first flushing toilet and charged everybody a penny <laughs> to come and use it. And that's where spend a penny comes from, presumably. Well, it is, of course. And, and he did very well, actually, because about 827,000 people Used the toilet mic at that time, and so they got at the great exhibition. So he made a he made a fair few pounds out of it all. I suppose so. I mean, I've always been um, fascinated whenever I've seen, um, particularly down in Bath, where they had the the, the Roman baths, which you can now go and see uh, in quite some detail. Yeah. That there was an awful lot of very clever plumbing going on uh, in in those days, wasn't there? Well, absolutely. I mean, the Romans brought us aqueducts and viaducts and, and whatever sort of stuff, and, and they were. Uh, amongst the first way back in the what was it 19, 1900 BC sort of stuff, uh, they started bringing in running water and flushing water through the towns and the cities to to take away uh, obviously uh, effluent and mm. all that sort of stuff, but move away dust and, and litter as well. Right. Um, and they then organised these large areas where uh, people could go to the toilet, um, and some of them were were quite substantial. Most of them were about eight to twenty people, but some of them actually got up to one hundred and forty people who all sat around discussing the mood of the day and whatever mm. while uh, while doing their business. Mm. Yes, I can't quite imagine um, that that would be something that people would want to do now. But I suppose one of the things that uh, uh, that has advanced um, the toilet uh, around the world has been the kind of mechanisation of it all um, and the kind of the mass yeah. use of it all, I suppose. When was it that people then... I mean, because I, I actually remember when I was, when I was a kid travelling around Europe, you know, there were some quite rudimentary arrangements, shall we say, without getting into too much detail, in some of the uh, the houses that we stayed in. Um, and I lived in a house, funnily enough, in Bath that had 
quite an old-fashioned uh, toilet system. And so when was it that everybody yeah. kind of took it for granted that they would have one? Because, of course, we hear tales of people with outside toilets. You'd have to go out to the bottom of the garden to, to use it. You know. Definitely. So when, when did it become sort of generally accepted that everybody in Britain, I suppose, actually had a proper indoor toilet? Um, probably started in around about 1848 when the Public Health Act was brought in through uh, by the, the government mm. uh, uh, because they there was uh, some terrible outbreaks of cholera and typhoid, dysentery, whatever, yeah. around the country type of stuff. People started to realise they had to do something to move this stuff all away. Mm. And in fact, we can actually uh, pin it down to the, the great stink of 1850 when the Thames was so polluted mm. that actually uh, Parliament had to put chlorine on their curtains yeah. because they couldn't stand the smell inside the, the chamber. Um, so they, they brought a guy called Basiljet, um, uh, Joseph Basiljet in to build the great sewer and move all the stuff away out to the, the, the tip of the Thames. Mm. And it was really from then onwards, 1851, the Great Exhibition, 1852, we started to see toilets appearing in public places. Yeah. But people with the new invention of the, of the S-valve and the, uh, the, the uh, standard flush and whatever, we started to see toilets but it, it probably wasn't, Mike, until 1900s, really, when when women got the vote, when we had suffragettes and that sort of stuff, and women sort of stood up for their rights and said, well, we want to come out into the public and we can't do what men do. We mm. can't just go at the side of the road or go into a, a small pot. We need a, a cubicle. We right. need something with doors. We need something with a seat. We need something with a um, toilet roll and whatever so uh, we can do. And that's where the standard closet came along with a, with a penny slot on the front. And we started to see those opening up everywhere. Then people embraced the idea, well, let's have one of these in our house. Mm, absolutely right. And and I suppose now, um, I mean, I know that there's, I think I, I, I once had a, a producer in, in radio in Scotland who was fascinated by the National Toilet Awards. And we used to do them every year. But I did. are you involved yes. in those at all? Well, we set them up. The BTA set the Toilet Awards up. It's now run by an independent company. Ah, okay. um, but what we were trying to do there was trying to say thanks to the cleaners because you've got to remember, and, and you'll understand through the, these uh, COVID times, yeah. cleaners are absolutely essential workers. They've been cleaning down the surfaces and the walls and the uh, handrails oh, and the toilets and the, the, the bases, whatever. And uh, we, we sort of wanted to give them a pat on the back and say, well done. Thank you for keeping these absolutely essential services open mm. because toilets very much are essential services. They're, they're something we all need to do. We all need to use on a daily basis, yeah. uh, particularly when we're away from home. We all have a toilet in our house. But when we go away, we then rely on shops and stations yeah. and public parks or down at the beach, whatever. We rely mm. on public toilets to uh, um, to, to make our make relief and make ourselves comfortable. Yeah, although I believe many of them have been closed during this um, uh, lockdown, as far as I'm aware. I think some may have reopened, but an awful yeah. lot of them haven't been open. Well, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, government doesn't give any funding to local councils for toilets. Councils, over, since the war, the councils have been fighting away and and providing public toilets because they know that people need to come out of their houses. They want them to come down into uh, the towns, the parks, the beaches, and use uh, use those facilities and spend their money. Mm. Technically, toilets help to bring money into towns and villages and cities all around the country because they're part of the, the vital infrastructure. Right. So councils are prepared to put them up. But now you have this this new viral threat of COVID. Um, the, the councils are faced with two a two-pronged uh, problem. One is getting them open and getting them really clean. And two then is keeping them clean, um, and because you know you can you can make them absolutely pristine and ready at eight o'clock in the morning, but the first time you have somebody through the door, then unfortunately your services start to start to diminish. So yeah. you have to then clean them regularly. You have to know what you're cleaning them with, Mike, because there's uh, so many different uh, surfaces. 
plastic, wood, glass, rails, pla handles, right. paint, flush handles. There's all these different surfaces, and and how long does this virus last on different surfaces? Those those tens those times tend to vary. Yes, indeed. And one final question for you, Roman. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but what's the most expensive toilet in the world? Because I know um, people like the Sultan of Brunei uh, and other famous sort of very wealthy people sometimes commission solid gold toilets. I'm not quite sure why you would bother <laughs> yes. with that, but I mean, is there such a thing as the most expensive toilet in the world? I, th- I think you're probably right in where you're pointing into Brunei and into some of the Arab states and whatever, because these people put these elaborate toilets not only on in their own palaces and, and houses, they put them on their planes, their private jets yeah. or whatever. So, right. um, you know, I'm sure you, could, you can get really very, very elaborate. But the, what we would always have said, BTA would always say the best toilet is a clean working toilet <laughs> that does the business and yeah. allows you to freshen yourselves and, and get back about what you're, do, what you're doing every day. Absolutely right. Great. Thanks very much indeed. Raymond Martin over the history uh, of the humble toilet. Uh, I bet you never thought you'd be listening to that on the radio uh, when you switched it on this morning. But hey, listen, you never know what we're going to do here at Talk Radio. That's part of the charm of what we do. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.